Welcome to Chewing the Fat, the Yale Sustainable Food Program's podcast that looks at people making change in the complex world of food and agriculture. I'm your host, Erwin Lee. For Chewing the Fat, we collaborate often with the Yale Center for the Study of Race, Indigeneity, and Transnational Migration. This partnership extends to this year's spring lineup of guests. But before we begin, we thought we'd share another episode from our archives. At the end of last year, legal scholar Andrea Freeman published her book, Skimmed, Breastfeeding, Race, and Injustice. We spoke with Andrea about her legal writings when she was a guest of ours a couple years ago, even covering the beginnings of her book. Andrea is now an associate professor of law at the University of Hawaii at Manoa's William S. Richardson School of Law. She has written extensively on the intersections between racial justice, food policy, health, and consumer credit. We're so excited about her book. Here's her fascinating conversation with YSFP alum Austin Brunyarski. So I want to first get started. You're a law professor. Correct. Um, so you like beginning conversations, uh, so I've heard, by defining terms. Okay. And there's a term that you use in a lot of your scholarship, food oppression. And I'm wondering if you might do us the, do us the service of defining it. Yes. So food oppression is racially, facially neutral law, policy, or government action that disproportionately harms a vulnerable community, whether it be community of color, poor, uh, you know, across gender lines, sexual orientation, immigration status, anything. And tied into this idea is the cooperation between corporations and the government and the fact that racial stereotypes and myths about personal responsibility help to both mask the problem and perpetuate it. And, and, and this masking is um, primarily concerned with um, policies that relate to food systems. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's all about f- anything that's food-related. Mm-hmm. And how, how do you see this um, bear out in the world? Um, what are the policies that you've written about um, that are maybe... Um, ostensibly facially neutral, but having this sort of disparate impact. Okay, great. So I have several examples. I'll start, I guess, with the agricultural subsidies. So the Farm Bill, which has been around for about 100 years, tells the USDA to subsidize certain agricultural commodities, and those commodities have not changed much Mm -hmm. over those 100 years. And the choices of what they are are mostly guided by agricultural big companies and lobbying, and they don't at all reflect the research that we have on health and nutrition. And so because the USDA has to to subsidize certain things, for example, milk, mm-hmm. then there we get a, a surplus of those things that the USDA then has to get rid of. So they don't really reflect the natural demand for those products. Or right. Those and so particularly with milk, there's been a decline over 30 years now of people drinking it. So milk actually leads to a lot of health problems. It's not very good for you, as the dairy industry would have you think it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, people, a lot of people just don't feel good when they drink it because of lactose intolerance. So because of all of these problems... There have been a lot less of 
people drinking it and a lot of studies coming out and telling people not to. So the government is storing milk in big caves and then trying to find ways to get rid of it. And one of the ways that they do this is by partnering with fast food companies. And they are trying to help these companies create products with more milk in them. So, for example, adding cheese into something that didn't have cheese before. And the greatest example is the Domino's Pizza, a new line that has seven cheeses on it (laughs) called the American Legends Pizza, which uh, DMI, which is a marketing branch of the USDA, helped them to create, helped them to promote. It kicked off at a Super Bowl in 2010 as one of the ads. And uh, this, to me, is a great example of food oppression. And these are like, these conversations are taking place in offices in Washington, D.C. <laughs> right. So people are creating these products and then getting fast food back into people's diets who didn't want it there. I mean, so through fast food, right, they're getting the milk back into people's diets who didn't want it there in the first place. And this has a disproportionate effect on poor urban communities of color where food access is a problem. Mm -hmm. So people who disproportionately eat more fast food because it's cheaper and it's available are being forced to eat more milk, which is making them sicker. And then we have health disparities that are documented in the diseases that are linked to eating too much milk and eating too much fast food. So this collaboration between the government and the fast food industry in order to serve the purpose of getting rid of a surplus by the USDA instead of the purpose of improving health and nutrition has a disproportionate effect on these communities. Mm-hmm. And that's an example of food oppression. And then in the case of these subsidies, um, particularly related to the dairy industry, for example, how do racial stereotypes play into this broader story? Yeah. So the way it plays in is that Once you get the result of people who are sick or overweight and all these other health disparities, instead of people being able to look at this problem as a structural one, the one that I just pointed out Mm -hmm. and say, we should see reform, instead what they say is, oh, this is a group of people who are lazy, they're not very intelligent, they just make bad choices. They're making themselves sick. So it's not the government's role. It's not the taxpayer's role. It's not our role to help them, right? Mm-hmm. It's just our role to say, hey, don't eat so many burgers and you'll, you won't have this problem. So they mask what's really going on by saying, it's your fault. We don't need reform. Right. This myth of personal responsibility. So then I guess the flip side of that is this question of access, right? Have you found in your research any sort of government action or government responsibility for not only this like wealth of access to not healthy food, but also the absence of healthy food? Or like, I'm just wondering how these are two sides of the same coin. Can we can we point fingers at the same actors? Yeah. Um, So one of the main things that I also focus on is the school lunchroom. Mm hmm. And, and other nutrition programs that the USDA runs. 
And this is an area where you might say, well, here's where the government can do good. And even if it's doing this on the one hand, maybe with the other hand, it could provide healthy food in these contexts to the people who really need it the most. Mm -hmm. You know, young, growing school kids and people on um, nutrition assistance. But in fact, the opposite is happening. And the same phenomenon is happening in these spaces where a school lunchroom is another venue for the USDA to get rid of all of the junk food items that are full of these subsidized commodities. So even when you have a school where they grow an organic garden outside, inside the school lunchroom at the same school, they're not allowed to eat any of those vegetables or any of the fruits growing off the trees. They have to eat corn dogs and tater tots, hmm. right? And things that contain corn and soy and wheat. And the kids aren't allowed to leave the lunchroom until they finish their milk, right? Because the USDA is seeing our schools as just another place for them to push these subsidized commodities out and not as a place to protect health. So is there any sort of like legal remedy or maybe litigation could be a solution or like is this an unconstitutional anyway if you can prove government <laughs> action like what are the sort of remedies to this problem yeah maybe legally or not yeah so i think that we need a range of responses and to first respond directly to your question about law of course i've thought a lot about this <laughs> and uh one thing that i've thought about in the constitutional context is um you know, the 14th Amendment, which provides for equal protection and is based on, you know, came out of slavery and a direct attempt to try to get rid of the legacies of slavery. And we also have the 13th Amendment to do that. And whether it might be possible to look at the health issue from that perspective. Mm -hmm. But you run up against this problem of the facially neutral laws. Right. Right. Because whenever the government's doing something that has a discriminatory impact, but not a discriminatory purpose that you can prove, something that demonstrates that they know that they're harming people on a, you know, on a racial basis or perhaps otherwise, you basically cannot prove anything under a constitutional 14th Amendment argument. Hmm. So that's not too good. Right. It has, you have to prove intent. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so... I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> you're, but you got it. <laughs> so either I explained it well or you've heard it somewhere before. And so under the 13th Amendment, you could look at these health disparities as a burden, an incident of slavery, something that has come out of slavery but is not directly slavery, but mm -hmm. is so tied to it that it shouldn't be allowed. Okay, so you can make that argument, but it's unlikely to be persuasive mm -hmm. because it's very difficult to convince people, particularly a court and a court that we might be seeing very soon, that that's 13th Amendment, you know, it rises to that level mm -hmm. of unconstitutionality. So that pretty much dispenses with constitutional arguments. As far as regular litigation goes, there is a group of people, and they're the same people that worked on the tobacco legislation, mm -hmm. um, the litigation, 
that are trying to bring a lot of cases against the fast food companies and the, and the industry and try to have some impact there. One of the major challenges in that type of litigation is, again, um, the sort of zeitgeist, the common social way of looking at food, right? So most people think that if you don't eat well, it's your fault, right? right? And they also don't see food in the same way that they see tobacco, Right, because As food is, evil. like, necessary. To... Yes, and um, they don't perceive it as something that's very damaging, right? Mm-hmm. They they might see it as, you know, oh, okay, this is a temptation. It might not be that good for me in moderation. It's okay, right? Whereas we were able to communicate to people about smoking that it was really a zero-sum, like, it's not okay. okay. Right. It's just not good for yeah. you, right? But now... Poor diet plus lack of exercise has actually overtaken smoking as the biggest killer of people in the United States of premature deaths. So I think that statistically we have a good argument Mm -hmm. to make for the fact that it's even more dangerous and harmful than smoking. But you need a change of mind, I think, for judges, other people who would be looking at these kind of cases to really support the idea that it's the same as tobacco and requires the same kind of regulation. For example, taking it away from kids, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you can't buy cigarettes. Well, maybe you shouldn't be able to buy a Big Mac either, right? But I just don't think as a society that we're there yet. So you see yourself as basically building this corpus of evidence that might be used. In- that, that's, that's possible. I think the area... <laughs> where we could have the most success would be on the regulation side, mm-hmm. right? And so that's where legally the the fight is to try to get regulation. And the major obstacle there is this cooperation between the government and the fast food industries, which you see through campaign contributions, mm-hmm. you see through lobbying, you see through revolving door uh, positions, people who work in, you know, say high up in McDonald's and next they're in the administration, right? And so there's this real buddy-buddy attitude, uh-huh. right, between the government and these corporations that makes it very unlikely that any regulation that's going to affect their bottom line is going to go through. So do you think that the sort of food policy arena is focusing enough on the stymieing of corporate control? And maybe if you were writing a letter to our (laughs) president-elect. Yikes. Yikes. Yes. Well, who is known as the fast food president. Right. Who is, you know, eating KFC on his private jet. I'm just wondering, like, are people who are talking about food law talking enough about, like, Citizens United or talking about this sort of strange not so strange bedfellowship. And what do you see as like a possible way forward, whether yeah. or not the president elect is a part of that? Yeah. I mean, there's there are things going on in other countries, you know, through the World Health Organization, recommendations, guidelines, mm-hmm. models that we could use. I'm afraid though that in this new era that we're entering, that uh there is going to be even more reluctance to look at what other countries are doing, Mm -hmm. to look at international guidelines as far as best practices. But I think that models do exist there. 
I think that there are a lot of people and organizations here that want regulation, but I don't hear a lot of conversations about trying to get that influence away. There was a case that was brought by the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, recently heard by the Ninth Circuit, that challenged the industry's influence over the federal dietary guidelines, Mm -hmm. which is another big issue that I've written about and am focused on. And the court just said it's not against the law. (laughs) So... As long as that is legal, it's not really punishable. It's it's just hard to, to say stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There can frequently be a tension with the sort of regulation of the food industry. An accusation that comes from that, that suggests that regulating people's food choices can be paternalistic. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering sort of what your take on that. Yeah. On that debate is. I don't put, so this is the so-called nanny state, Uh right? right. Um, We don't want our government telling us what to do, especially Mm -hmm. in something so intimate and personal as food choices. But I always find it ironic that people don't have any problem with other types of regulation that save lives, which is what this is about, you know, so... Who's protesting against the seatbelt laws, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or traffic lights or, you know, airline safety regulations, right? We love those. Right. So there's something about the society's dialogue, right, about food that is just fundamentally wrong because it's not being framed as a public health issue, mm-hmm. which it is. Right. In the same way that you need to wear a seatbelt, you should have to make sure that the food you sell, right? So if you work for an airline and you have to check the plane six times and and sign the box before you can fly, then you should have to check the ingredients in your food. And if five of them are things that are linked to, you know, cancer and uh, brain deterioration, and then, I mean, these are things that we have in our food right now that other countries don't allow in their foods, mm-hmm. Right that there is documented evidence that if you continually eat this, these things will happen to you. That's not regulated. Well, that doesn't make any sense to me as far as framing the problem as paternalistic because we don't really have a problem with paternalism. We just have a problem with some paternalism. Right. And I think that argument um, assumes that the government doesn't already have undue influence on the choices we're making in the way of, you know, subsidies or what have you. Right. There's a lot of factors beyond our control, but everybody wants to feel like they have personal agency. They have control over what they're doing. So they ignore those factors that are in place that are constricting their choices and they insist on full freedom of choice. Mm -hmm. Which I think is the sort of masking you speak of in, in motion. One thing that I am curious about is how you sort of came to critical race theory as a framework that you regularly employ? So even before I was obsessed with food, I was obsessed with racial justice. Uh (laughs) Um, So that's something that has been a part of my thinking, my living, you know, my life ever since I was a teenager. And so any problem that I see in the world, I approach from You know, you can call it critical race theory, you can call it racial justice, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, depending what era you're in, (laughs) right? But that's the frame with which I view the world. 
So I can't see any situation, whether it's political, personal, social, whatever it is, without thinking about race. Mm -hmm. So when I think about food, and it's something that I've thought about and cared about for a long time, then it just automatically, I'm seeing that from a racial justice perspective. So when I started to write about food, then that was the the methodology or the framework or the paradigm that I was working with because that's the lens I use to look at any problem. Mm-hmm. And so I just applied it and looked at problems that way. So a lot of the things that I'm looking at, other people have seen. I mean, there's you can read a lot about the subsidies and how bad agricultural subsidies are, how bad school lunches are, right? But then the part of the conversation that I'm bringing to this is about, well, let's take it one step further. What's the impact? What's the racial impact here? What's the gender impact, right? A lot of people are look, think about class, I think, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of who's in these programs, who has to eat school lunch. That may be more of a conversation, but the food movement has not paid a lot of attention to race and the racial justice movement has not consistently paid attention to food. So my hope is that my scholarship bridges that gap. I mean, we have the Black Panthers and their breakfast program, Mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, I did not invent this, (laughs) you know what I mean? But um, it's, it's a movement that I think needs to stay relevant and talked about. And it's not a conversation that's taking place all over the place, which is what I would like to see. So what kind of source materials are you using when you're writing and thinking about this? I know, as you mentioned earlier, critical race theory is often rooted in like personal narrative and sort of the way that the law is like felt. And when I read one of your journal articles in the footnotes, it's not always other, it's not always other like law journal articles okay. that you're citing. It's a lot of really important other works. So can you talk a little bit more about Yeah, it's, it's definitely an interdisciplinary pursuit. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, so, I mean, there's the legal perspective and there's psychology, there's sociology, there's health, right? There's race, um, feminism. So I think it spans a lot. And, and a lot of it also what I'm looking at, which makes my research assistants happy, is popular culture. Uh Right. Right. Because I think media is extremely important. I think that the images we see when we're consuming television and movies and, um, you know, video, music videos, they tell us how to think in a way that one, we're not as aware of. Right. Right. And two, is much more meaningful and impactful to us than reading something like a legal article, <laughs> right? And so I draw a lot on that. I look at blogs, right? I look at Facebook posts, whatever's out there, you know? So it's both interdisciplinary in a academic way, but also in a hopefully cultural way that I think is so important that it really matters what people are thinking consciously or you know, if you want to think about implicit bias and all right, these other, right, you know, all right. the messages that we yeah. take in that we may or may not be aware that we're basing our actions and thoughts on. So how do you make sure that, like, when you are consuming popular culture, like, you 
you know, check yourself or are hyper aware of the messages you're receiving. I'm just wondering. Yeah. Like that must be so. Yeah. Because that's just me. Yeah. Then it's not like I need to check. Uh-huh. I think I might need to check the other way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, this is the way that uh, a film might ask you to suspend your disbelief. Right. In order to enjoy it. Right. You might have to suspend your critical eye to enjoy some things. Uh Right. Or at least set aside so that you can even participate because so many aspects of our popular culture are so radically offensive, you know, Mm -hmm. that it's it's almost hard to consume if you're constantly feeling the outrage at what you're seeing. Right. So uh, I watch a lot of movies. I watch some television (laughs) shows that I think are interesting, but I'm very interested in uh, the messages that are coming across about, you know, race and gender and class and sexual orientation and and everything else and sometimes food Mm -hmm. when it's there. Yeah. How long have you been at the University of Hawaii for? This is my fourth year there. And how has um, your surroundings and your setting sort of changed your your scholarship? Or how are you seeing what you're writing about, you know, existing in Hawaii? Yeah, it's a good question. So my focus has always been more uh, heavily on um, Black and Latino populations. And uh, if you come to Hawaii, you'll see that we don't have very (laughs) um, healthy black or Latino population. We have almost nobody. Mm -hmm. And so the problems there are different. They're very rooted in colonialism and the occupation of Hawaii, so tied up with Hawaiian sovereignty issues Mm -hmm. that over there, I mean, the United States came in, they took over, they destroyed the way of living, the way of eating, and uh, culturally eating and living and, you know, it's extremely tied together, not as disassociated as it is in some other, you know, in the United States. And so there are extreme health disparities among populations, particularly Native Hawaiians who have come from, you know, the people living in that land to be about 16% of the population now and to have extreme health disparities with other communities that live there, as well as immigrants from around Micronesia and Samoa. And so there are unique issues. And I've been thinking about them, talking to people, working in communities, and putting a little bit into my scholarship, but I'm not focused on it right now, Mm -hmm. but it does broaden my thinking about the different ways that food oppression is happening in different settings. What are you working on now? What's next for Professor Freeman, the legal (laughs) scholar? Uh, Well, I have a, a bunch of papers in the works, but my biggest project is a book that I'm working on. And it centers on the story of the Fultz Quads, who were the first black identical quadruplets recorded to be born in the United States and perhaps the world. And they were born in North Carolina in 1946. Their mother was um, deaf and mute, and she had six children already. 
Their father was a tenant farmer on a tobacco farm. And the doctor that delivered them was a vitamin C enthusiast who decided to experiment on the girls by injecting them with vitamin C the day they were born. He also felt so much ownership over them that he named them, taking that privilege away from the parents who had already come up with a whole bunch of names that they wanted. Mm -hmm. But he named them after his own family members. And then he started negotiating with formula companies over who would uh, get the rights to use them, these beautiful girls who came out perfectly and healthy, on their promotional materials. So he made a deal with the company that uh, is not around, what's well, called Pet Milk, and they were a uh, evaporated milk company, which is what people use for formula back in those days. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, he orchestrated a series of events that eventually took the girls away from their family, kept them in poverty their whole lives, and they all got breast cancer by the time that they were 45. One is still alive. And so their story, um, the girls are amazing and, you know, there's a lot of joy in the story too, but it's a sad story about how they, this corporation exploited them in order to open up the market for formula to black women who now use formula at much higher rates than white women, Latinas, or other groups, and also have infant mortality that's three times higher which is linked to formula use and a lot of other health problems. So the book looks at these health disparities from a food oppression perspective Mm -hmm. and how the laws that we have in place to protect breastfeeding and promote it are insufficient and how the government works with the formula companies still by distributing for free their products in hospital. And to actually women through WIC, which Mm -hmm. is the Government Nutrition Assistance Program. So there's like complicity. A lot. Yeah. Yeah, It's a perfect food oppression example. So the book is on that. Fantastic. uh, That's that's the major project I have right now. Yeah, looking forward to reading. And then um, you are here on campus in addition to our Chewing the Fat series for an empirical methods and critical race theory conference. And could you speak a bit to why that's important? So this is a group that I've been a part of for a while now, maybe five years And it's a kind of a new branch, cutting edge look at uh, critical race theory, and it combines empirical methodologies with critical race theory. So that means that it depends, it it looks at statistics, it collects data, and analyzes it from a critical race perspective to see how problems that we're looking at in law and in other disciplines can be documented and kind of proven Mm -hmm. through statistics and uh, taking that as a starting off point to try to either change laws, change policies, change judges' minds, just bring attention to the reality of what's happening in in a place where it's very easy for people to think that racism, especially in the post-racial world, which I think we're now post uh, in the Trump era, but... Uh, post, post racial I think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But as far as what we've been in for the past while, it's very easy just to deny racism, right? right. And, say, and, and that's that's been the, the thing, oh, we're not there anymore, we're past it, right? But when you sit down and you look at the statistics, you really can't refute them. Mm-hmm. So it's a way of addressing 
post-racialism. And I think it's still going to be relevant, even though we have a little more blatant racism going on right now. And hopefully endures what has now been coined the post-truth era. So best wishes. (laughs) Thanks. From the Yale Sustainable Food Program, this has been Chewing the Fat. Skimmed, Breastfeeding Race and Injustice, is available in bookstores today. You can follow Andrea's work on Twitter at AFreemanLawPal. This episode was originally produced by Austin Bernarski. Editing by Thomas Hagen and myself, Erwin Lee. Mixing by Ryan McAvoy of the Yale Broadcast Studio. Music by Eddie Joe Antonio and Louis De Felice. Artwork by Logan Howard. Program support by Jacqueline Menno, Jeremy Oldfield, Noah Macy, and Mark Bomford. See you in two weeks with our new lineup.